following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. The word of the Lord from Ephesians chapter 1, 1 to 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, we're starting a new series today um, through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is a compact book of the Bible, um, six chapters. It's roughly 2,000 words, um, but for pound for pound, it is perhaps one of the greatest books of the Bible ever written. And I know that's a little bit taboo to say that there's one book of the Bible that's better than the other, but pound for pound, there is not a, a book, that, not a letter that has more of a robust theological framework. It, it, it takes us up into the cosmos. It gives us this transcendence while at the same time rooting us in this deeply personal relationship that God offers with us. And so what we're going to see here over the next nine months, we'll camp out here for nine months in this letter, um, six chapters of theological good, gold. Um, this is, some scholars have said this is doctrine set to music. This is perhaps one of the most beautifully written, just from a literary perspective. If you just appreciate good writing, this is one of the most beautiful pieces of writing that's ever been written, not to mention it's one of the most significant documents in the history of humanity. And as Paul writes this letter, who we'll, we'll meet later, the, the author of the book of Ephesians, he writes, um, he writes to a specific church in Ephesus. We'll, we'll unpack all this in a minute. But the crazy thing is, though, 2,000 years ago, he penned this, and it still slaps today, right? This is still one of the greatest hitting documents. It is so relevant to daily life. In fact, I've got a pastor friend um, who said that if he had to choose just one book of the Bible uh, to do his ministry from for the rest of his life, like just you're limited to the bounds of one chapter, one book, or excuse me, one book of the Bible, he said, I would, I would choose the book of Ephesians because it's got something to say about nearly every experience that you're going to have in life. Now, one of the things that makes this book so profound is how the Apostle Paul explains the gospel. Now, one of the things that I think is a misconception that circulates among churches and just kind of the view about what church is and what the gospel is, it's this, this reductionistic view where we think the gospel is simply a ticket to get to heaven when you die, right? You punch the ticket, the get-out-of-jail-free card, you punch that ticket, you get to heaven, everything's peachy keen after that. But what Paul tells us here in the book of Ephesians is the gospel is so much bigger than that. There's so much more to it than just getting us out of hell and bringing us into life with Jesus in, the, you know, in, in heaven someday. He shows us how the gospel opens up a completely new way of being in the world. And this whole thing stems from an understanding of what your true identity is in Jesus Christ. Now, that's one of the things that we talk a lot about here at Sacred City. We talk about what is your identity? Who are you? What makes you, you? Now, this is not a, a question that's, that's sort of limited to these four walls. This is a deep existential question that we all wrestle with, whether it's in the background of our lives or it's something that we're actually striving and wrestling with, maybe from a philosophical perspective. In fact, I've been reading Jordan Peterson's new book, Beyond Order. 
And, and in this book, he talks about, like right in the beginning of the book, he talks about this is maybe one of the most important questions that we have to ask ourselves, is who am I? What makes me me at the core of me, right? What is the non-negotiable distinctives of myself? Now, this, isn't, this is not only a philosophical question. I mean, we could sit back and smoke cigars and drink bourbon and discuss what does it mean to be me? What's my identity? Take, take a, a philosophical perspective of it. But it's not just philosophical because this works itself into very practical things about us. This is who we are is going to determine how we live. It's going to give us a sense of purpose. It's going to give us a sense of stability, of acceptance, of just giving the, the feeling, the, the comfort of knowing I'm loved. Like this, this thing makes me me, and I am embraced because of this. This is one of the most basic needs that we have as humans is understanding who I am. Now, this is one of the reasons why like this question is like in in nearly every piece of entertainment that we have, some of the best movies, wrestle with this question. Like um, from Disney movies like Mulan, kids movies like Shrek is asking this question, who am I, what's my place in this world? Right? You get into more adult culture movies, Fight Club is all about this. The movie Memento is like figuring out the truth of who I am. There's all kinds of movies. Queen's Gambit is another one. It's like all about my identity. Who am I really? If you strip everything else away, who am I? It's an, it's an important question. It's one that circulates often. You can't escape it. It's core to who we are as human beings. We have to answer it. And we tend to answer this question by pointing to the things that we do. There's this quote that's misattributed to Aristotle that says, you are what you repeatedly do, right? This idea that, that my doing shapes my being. And so we, we point to our duties, our relationships, skills, the desires and longings that we have. And, and this becomes really obvious to us when we're introducing ourselves to new people. It's like one of the first things that you start talking about. Hey, my name is Sam, and I'm a pastor, right? It's sort of like this connection. Like we connect what we do to who we are. We say, I'm a teacher. I'm a stay-at-home mom, I'm a musician, I'm an athlete, I'm a student, I'm a dad, right? We go to these things, like, this is who I am because of what I do. And if you were to just sit for a moment and think, like, what is it that you would say? Like, hey, my name is Larry, I'm a blank. What is it that you go to? The first response, they say, hey, that's my identity, that's where I find my sense of value, meaning, and worth. Now, if you're good at whatever it is that you associate your identity with, right? If you're good at it, it's pretty validating, right? If I say I'm a musician and I'm a good musician, then people will applaud me. They'll say, yeah, of course, you're a great musician. You got that. It sort of reinforces, it bolsters this identity that you have as that type of thing. You get an award, you get recognized, you get a promotion, you graduate, right? Lots of affirma- affirmation can sort of affirm that identity. Say, yes, this is who you are. You're good at this. This is your identity. Now, the thing about this is, is making our identity in what we do is that you have to maintain that identity or else you're living in the past. Think of like Uncle Rico from the old movie Napoleon Dynamite. Like his identity, what was it wrapped up in? Being a high school football all-star, right? And here he is, some like middle-aged, you know, 45-year-old dude living in a van, living in the glory days. His identity is wrapped up this identity, but he's, he's living in the past. What you have to do is maintain this identity 
in order to preserve it, in order to keep it, in order to have it be like meaningful to you. In fact, there was an interview um, with Madonna. I think it was like Vanity Fair or Vogue, some magazine that I don't read. Um, and, and they asked her, she's talking about like how she has to reinvent herself every year in order to stay relevant. Like she has to keep up coming with new, up, coming up with new things to solidify herself as a, as a pop star, as a, a celebrity. She just has to keep maintaining. And, and here's the reality of this, is, is that if you are in constant maintenance mode of this, this identity, eventually you're going to get fatigued. Eventually the gas tank runs empty and it just sort of piddles out. You burn out. And so this, in order to avoid that, what happens when you burn out is you, you get the like identity crisis. So in order to avoid that pitfall, what you have to do is sort of justify your existence and whatever that is, whatever role, whatever trait, whatever skill that you have, this is sort of a justification of, of your life. Um, the movie Chariots of Fire, it, it follows these two racers. One of them is a, um, a Christian racer. He runs, he says, Hey, when I run, I feel God. It's, it's like this joyful expression, using his giftings, sort of opening up this reality. It's not that he finds his identity in being a runner, but his, his counterpart in this movie, he says, every time I sit at the beginning of a race, I'm, I'm there at the line, I've got 10 seconds. There's four feet of space. I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. And he leaves it with the question of like, will I do it? Can I maintain it? Can I justify now, if our identity is wrapped up in what we do, you have to keep justifying your existence. And what this means is there's a big risk in associating your identity with that which you do. Because if you can earn it, it means you can lose it. If you can earn it, it means it can be taken away from you. Right, think of this, like if your identity is wrapped up in being an all-star mom, like you have your own Instagram thing and everybody follows you and you're like, oh, this is the best mom in the world. All it takes is one trip to, to Target where a kid just loses their mind, right? They're having a meltdown about a candy bar or something that you say you can't have. Your kid just loses their mind and then what, what's your response, right? You lash out. And in that moment, your identity as being this great all-star mom sort of like unravels for a moment. Because if you can earn it, you can lose it. Or if, it, if your identity is wrapped up in, in a job, you've sort of gone to the best schools, you've gotten the right degrees, you've, you've elevated, elevated, elevated promotion after promotion, right? You've sort of accumulated all of these good things, all of these, these um, uh, what am I, accolades, and then you get fired, you get laid off. Then what? Right? If your identity is wrapped up in what you do with your job, and it gets taken from you, what happened? Or if Uncle Rico, sports injury. Like if, if your identity is wrapped up in sports and you lose that ability, like you've got an injury, some sort of health setback, like where does your identity go then? Where do you find it? Your identity is in being a mom or a husband or a wife or whatever relationship, and that falls apart. See, that, that sends you into a tailspin. It sends you on the brink of an identity crisis. See, anything that will disrupt our identity, anything that stands in the way, anything that says, yeah, I'm not quite sure about your whole identity, I'm not quite sure about this picture that you've created of yourself, can send us in a spiral questioning, who am I really? Now, most people don't think about identity until that thing gets yanked out from underneath of them. 
Right? Most people, this is not necessarily a conversation that we have. Hey, look, where are you finding your identity today? But, but you know when that thing gets yanked out from underneath of you. You feel the rug go. It's like, oh, that, that thing was way more me. It's like that thing has become intrinsically wrapped up in who I am. And so if that thing gets pulled away, you, you're left wondering, if I'm not this, then who am I? If I'm not this, then what am I? I had an experience like this. Actually, I've had multiple experiences like this. In my life, um, probably the most recent one was five years ago. Um, I was, we, were, we were getting ready to plant Sacred City Moline. Um, and we're part of an Acts, uh, a church playing network called Acts 29. Um, and and this, this network of churches, one of the things that they provide is an assessment process that make sure church planters and their wives are ready to, to set out on this church planting journey. And um, we, we put a lot of stock in what these sort of like, they're, they're pastors from the area, people that we trust, and we put a lot of stock in what they have to say because they're sort of like a, a non-partial or an impartial um, sort of judge of character, of competencies, of all that stuff. And so we put a lot of stock in what they say. And so my wife and I step into this process. We go through the interview. It's a couple days up in Chicago. Um, and I'm just like feeling like, man, we nailed that. I'm just, I'm just waiting to get the rubber stamp of, boom, you're ready to go. You got this you know, blessings to you and just sort of get sent off to plant a church. And, and what I got instead was not that at all. See, leading up to that point, I'd spent like the last, I don't know, it, it's probably going on a decade of being inside of a church world, a ministry setting, whether it was music ministry, leading worship or, or leading missional communities or doing residencies or working for the church. I had my identity sort of wrapped up in the ministry vocation. And when I go through that assessment, they were not giving me a rubber stamp. They say, hey, we actually think that you need to wait, like maybe a year. Like you need to pump the brakes. We don't think you're ready to be a church, but you're not ready to go out like that. And I was, honestly, I was destroyed. I just remember, like, literally asking my question, myself the question, if I'm not, because I'm like, does this mean the end of the road for ministry for me? Does this mean I got to find a new job, got to find something else to do with my life? Because I'm, I'm like thinking, if it's not ministry, if I'm not going to be a pastor, then what am I going to be? And one of the most gracious things that God offered me in that season was the ability to, to sort of debunk my identity inside of the ministry world. Like today, I know my identity's not wrapped up in this. Like I love being a pastor. I love it. But tomorrow, I could go work for FedEx if I had to. Because my identity, I'm not defined by the work I do. See, Jesus brought me to the season that brought me out of having this, this identity that's wrapped up into the pastorate. Now, maybe you've been there before. Like, you've had this sort of identity crisis. Or maybe you're in it right now. You're, you're asking that question. If I'm not this, then what am I? Now, I think that there's a danger in this, is that if we set out, we try something, we fail, we set out, try something, fail, try, fail, try, fail, right? What happens eventually is that if we keep going after it, we fail so many times that we sort of just resign as a failure. Like, we kind of get settled in, like, I'm never going to, I'm never going to amount to anything, I'm never going to get up, I'm never, you know, I can't really bring anything to the table, and so we just sort of resign, I guess, this is, this is what it is. One of the worst mistakes that you can make is 
trading in one shoddy identity, right? One identity that's based on what you do for another one, and you just repeat the same mistakes. You try, you fail, you try, you fail. The only way that you can find a secure identity is if you are found in Christ. That's the only place that you're going to find an identity that's both satisfying and secure. And this is one of the repeating refrains that we see through the book of Ephesians is this this word, this phrase of in Christ, or Paul says, in him, in the beloved, right? This is where we find our identity. It's in him. And what it does is this whole time throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul is trying to show us what defines you if your faith is in Jesus. It's not what you do. It's not your successes. It's not your failures. What defines you is what Jesus has done for you. And this is demonstrated so eloquently by the Apostle Paul here. Like literally, this whole book is about identity formation. Where can you go to find this beautiful identity, this this secure and satisfying identity? One commentator says that the book of Ephesians is all about identity formation. It's pointing us to who you are, the real you in Christ. And one of the things that we see right on the outset is is how Paul so eloquently explains his own realization of who he is. He starts out this, this letter by saying, Paul, he's introducing himself, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now, Paul, when he's... Very clearly, like this is an old fo- format that, that back in the first century in the ancient world, this is how they would write letters. This is who I am, who I'm writing to, um, and they give some sort of blessing. Paul does this right here. He says, here, who's, he, he's identifying himself. I am Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, when we talk about Paul being an apostle, um, it's, it's a formal title for Paul. It, it's, it's a... Um, a capital A apostle. He's one of the people that Jesus handpicked, hand-selected, and commissioned to go and, and do ministry things. Paul says, here I am. I've been personally selected by God, by Jesus, to carry out the ministry of Jesus. And, and what he says here is, is like, listen, it's not because I'm awesome. He says, he doesn't say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, because I'm so awesome, because I've gotten my stuff together, because I figured it all out. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. See, this whole identity, as he's is describing himself, he's associating himself, not by what he does, but by who Jesus has made him. He's saying, I'm not, I'm not I, who I am because I'm awesome. It's not because I worked my way there. Not even because Paul wanted to be an apostle. In fact, if you know Paul's story at all, Paul didn't want anything to do with Jesus. See, G- Paul, we, we kind of talked about this last week, so I won't spend too much time. Paul was a guy who hated the church. He hated Christians, and he was one of the ones who was responsible for trying to snuff them out as, at the very beginning, at the origin of the church. Now, Paul set out, he wanted to stop him. He was responsible for the murder of the first martyr, um, Stephen. He was trying to put a kink in the hose uh, of these disciples who are going out to tell people about Jesus, and all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. The resurrected Jesus shows up, knocks Paul off his horse, and says, hey, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And it's in that moment, Paul has this realization about who Jesus is. Jesus isn't just like some, some cool new teacher who came on the scene and some fat. He realizes that Jesus is the Lord. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God who's come to give the way of salvation to all who believe in him. And so Paul 
goes from being enemy number one of the church to being one of the biggest assets of the church, where Jesus uses him. He saves him. He gives him a new identity. Like, literally, start call, he used to be called Saul. Now he's called Paul. He's getting this new identity, and he starts using him in these powerful ways. And none of this is because Paul is awesome. None of it's because Paul has it all figured out. It's because Jesus has done this. It's by the will of God. And with this comes a sense of humility. Paul doesn't have a swagger. Paul, Paul doesn't have this like boosted ego. He has this humility. Now, so many so-called Christians lack this kind of humility. And what we tend to do is we, we put out our, our spiritual resume, our list of things, the good things that we've done for God that seem to like inch us closer to being more acceptable, right? To try to prove that we're worthy of Jesus. And they have this, this very legalistic sort of moralistic, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, try hard, do better, get after it. You can change your future mentality, right? Be a winner. Don't be a loser. Be a winner. And what happens when they, when they have this mentality about like, I can do this, I can muster this up, I can bring something to the table, it brings this swagger, this arrogance, which is really repulsive to other people, right? Their, their nose is up in the air, like we're better than you, like we're, we're God's chosen, so there's something in, like intrinsically better about me than there is about me. And it pushes people away. But that is antithetical to the gospel. Right, to understanding what Jesus has done because what the gospel will do is create humility in a person, not arrogance. See, a marker of a true Christian is sort of like what Paul's doing here. Here's who I am, but it's by the grace of God I am what I am. Here's who I am. Like this is what God, he's called me up, he's, he's chosen me, he's using me, but it's not because I'm awesome, it's because Jesus is awesome. As Paul settles in his own identity as, as one who belongs to Jesus. He writes to other people here who have also experienced the grace of Jesus, right? This new identity that they find in Christ. And the purpose of this whole letter is for him to, to, to tell this church, right? The church in Ephesus of here is the most true things about you. That if your identity is in Christ, this is who you are. Now, as we sit here, as we sit, you know, in, in the year 2021, and we read this letter, we have to realize, first of all, this, this letter wasn't written to us specifically, but it was written for us. And so everything that is said about this church in Ephesus, the Christians here in Ephesus, is also true of us today. And what Paul is trying to do here, he's trying to form these Ephesian people, these Christians, about who their identity is. That's why, why we're calling this whole series Identity Formation. Right? This is who you are in Christ Jesus. Now, over the next several months, we're going to be digging into this because it's, it's not like, when it comes to our identity in Christ, it's a multifaceted diamond. Right? There's tons of different angles, different ways to understand. I mean, like these banners sort of just pinpoint some of the highlights of what we'll be going through. Like this is who you are. You're adopted. You're a child. Right? You've been saved. You've been ransomed. It's all of these things Paul lists out, and we'll get to dig through those things but right at the get-go, right at the start, Paul identifies, after identifying himself, he gets right to, right to it in an intro. He's like, here's who you are. 
If you are in Christ, if, you're, if you have a relationship with Jesus, here is who you are. And he talks about here's what you are, here's where you are, and what makes you and keeps you in this identity. That's really the three things I want to touch as we go through verses 1 and 2 today. Let's just read it real quick. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, right at the start, he says, listen, this is who you are. You are saints. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful. So he's calling these Christians both saints and faithful. And when you look at this, he's not targeting just a small population of people in the church, like the super elites, the all-stars, the varsity Christians who really got their act together and are really doing good things for the Lord. He's talking about everybody. And the reason that we know this is that in chapter, in verse 2, he says, grace to you. And anytime you see the word you in the book of Ephesians, it's not a singular you. See, this is one of the flaws of the English language is when you see the word you, it can be used either both singular or plural. But every time you see the word you in the book of Ephesians, you have to think of it in the plural. It's a, a communal book. It's meant to speak to a group of people, not isolated individuals. So when you see the word you, what you need to think is Southern. Say, y'all. Grace to y'all and peace from God our Father. And so what he's talking is the y'all is the saints. It's everybody. He's calling everybody saints and faithful. So if you are in Christ Jesus, if your faith is in Jesus, you are called a saint. Now, depending on your upbringing, depending on your background with church, this is probably going to invoke all kinds of different imagery here, right? Especially if you come from the Catholic church, which has very different understanding about what it means to be a saint. Like typically, it's somebody who's super pious, a superstar Christian who is probably martyred or responsible for miracles or some sort of fanatic, right? They're like the varsity Christians. But here, it's redefined. Saints are not this like super, it's everybody. Every Christian is called a saint. Now, it's like, I don't feel like a saint, to be 100% honest. There are days, there are moments where I'm like, I'm pretty sure a saint doesn't think the way that I think. Right? I'm pretty sure saints don't have the heart attitude that I tend to have when I get snuffed or I'm slighted or I'm irritated offended. So how is it that Paul could be calling me or us in the company of all of the Christians in Ephesus? How is it that he could be calling me saint, let alone faithful? I mean, we even sang about it this morning. We said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God alone. How in the world can I be called a saint and faithful? The reality, the way that I live my life oftentimes does not line up with this, right? Can you relate to that? You called, you're called a saint? Is, are you like, oh, yeah, of course I'm a saint. It's like, well, that, that, that might actually mean that you're somebody that I was talking about. That whole arrogance thing, that might, you go back and listen to that. But if you're like, yeah, no, I, I mean, like, every, this morning when we confess our sin, we kind of laid our cards down on the table. Like, we're not perfect. We, we sin. There, there's places where we have brokenness in our own lives. And so we're wondering, how is it that I can be called a saint? Because he, and we, we can't get this mistaken because when, when Paul calls us a saint, it's not that it, we never sin, right? It's not that when he says you're a, a saint that you will never, ever sin again. And one of the realities in our Christian faith is that there's these, there's, there, well, 
Paul will talk about later, later on in Ephesians. There's two men alive inside of us. There's the old man who loves to sin, who loves to rebel against God, who pushes away and wants to do our own thing. And then the other man inside of us who has been made alive in Christ, that desires what is good and true and beautiful. And so one of the realities that we wrestle with in the Christian life is is this competing rivalry between the old self and the new self. So just because I'm a saint doesn't mean that I stop sinning. In fact, you you step foot in a missional community, and most of the people in the room are going to be Christians, but you're going to find that they sin a lot. So it doesn't mean that we stop sinning. Sin is a constant factor in my life. I'm still going to deal with lust. I'm still going to deal with anger. I'm still going to have pride and envy and on and on and on but yet I'm called a holy one. That's, that's, that's the translation, the saint, holy one. Now, Scripture talks about God, like God is the only one who's called holy. Holy means to be set apart, to be more beautiful, more true, more glorious than anything else. And here, we are get, getting some of the attributes that are given to God, and we're claiming them for ourselves. How in the world is this? How could I be called a holy one? Either the Bible is lying about who I am, where our definition of a saint is off. The biblical definition, the working definition that Paul uses for saint is anybody who belongs to Jesus, anybody who trusts in Jesus. Now, the reason you can be called a saint is because when you put your faith in Christ, you are no longer defined by your sins or your failures. Those those things, those places where you went to find your identity that have let you down, those things no longer define you. Instead, you're defined by Christ's perfect life that he lived for you. And what happens on the cross is he pays the price for your false identity. He takes upon himself your sin and your failures and he nails them to the cross. And what he does there is he imparts to you his own identity. See, Jesus was the only holy one. He was the only righteous one. Always did the will of God. And on the cross, he takes on our sin, and he gifts us his own righteousness. So now, my identity is not wrapped up in what I've done, but wrapped up in what Jesus has done for me. That's through his work on the cross, I'm made holy and blameless. Now, this means that no matter how pressing your sin, no matter how in your face or how persistent your sin is in your life. Your sin, if you are in Christ, does not define you. See, the most, the thing that is most true about you is that you're holy, that you're sanctified, that you're a saint. It's what Jesus has done for you. And it's from this new identity that we receive in Christ that our action flows out of. See, being will always inform our doing. Our culture gets, gets it flip-flop. They say your doing means your being, or your doing makes your being. But in Christ, your being will inform your doing. And so what does it look like to live like a saint? That if I am a saint in Christ, what does it look like to live into this identity as a saint, a holy one, a faithful one? I think one of the first things is that we are repentant. This means that we have this reality about our sin. Like we, we, it's not that we hide our sin or sweep it under the rug or pretend like it, it doesn't exist. That if we're a saint, we have this freedom to acknowledge our sin for what it is. To say, yep, I've failed, I've sinned, I've broken God's covenant. 
to be grieved of our sin and, and actually turn away from it. See, this is what it looks like to live into this identity. Like To those who are sanctified, those who are being made holy, a sin will always be part of our, our life, but a saint will have a growing distaste for that sin. And in place of that desire for sin will be an increasing desire for what is good and true and beautiful. But here's the thing, like, you would think that if I'm like simultaneously saint and sinner, like, uh, or a more theologically accurate way would be to say I'm, I'm a saint who struggles with sin. If this is who I am, then how do I know that I'm not going to lose that identity as a saint? Like, is there a tipping point? Is there a point where my identity can be lost? Like if I sin too much or if I do too many bad things? Really, that's the problem with all of the identi- other identities or the places where we go to find our identities is that we can lose them. But the thing about our identity in Christ is that it is beyond the reach of sin. This is crazy. So when Paul is writing here, he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now what he's pointing to here is this dual reality about your geographical location. Like right now, you're in two places at once. If you're a Christian, you're in two places at once. Right now, you're sitting in a pew in Moline, Illinois. But if your identity is in Christ, that also means that your identity is in Christ. And where is Christ? He's seated in heaven, above the heavenlies. Colossians tells us we are hidden with Christ in God. That is where our identity is. That means that our identity is placed in heaven beyond the reach of sin. And so in one sense, you've got feet, in the gr- feet on the ground here on this earth. But in another sense, your life is hidden. Your identity is secure in Christ. Nothing that's why Paul says in Romans, nothing can separate you because it's bound to you. It's in a safe spot. Now, the only way for you to lose your identity in Christ is if Jesus were to get down off of his throne in heaven and crawl back in that tomb. That's the only way for you to lose that identity that you have in Christ. And I guarantee you, Jesus is not going back to that tomb anytime soon. So that means if your identity is in Christ, it's secure. Now the question then is, how do I gain this identity? Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is more than just a greeting. This is more than just a salutation. Paul is pinpointing the source of this identity. And and not just the source, but what maintains this identity. It's the grace of God. Grace to you from God. That's the only way that you can gain this identity of Christ. You can't earn it. You can't work yourself to this identity. It is a gift from God. It's an identity that can't be earned or achieved. It's a given identity. And if it's given, then the only one who can take it from you is the one who gave it to you, and Jesus will not take it. So it's God's grace to us that gives us this new identity, that that maintains this identity as saints, as the faithful. And actually, it's God's grace that compels us to live in light of that identity. But really, one of the greatest gifts of this identity is the sense of peace that it gives us. See, it pulls us out of this performance mentality. It pulls us out of this constant jumping 
through the hoops rigmarole that we have to do, like the whole Madonna thing about reinventing ourselves and maintaining who we are by continually going, going, going. And what it does is it gives a sense of peace, a sense of assurance. Now, if you're not yet a Christian, I would imagine that, that you probably feel this lack of peace, this sense of striving for an identity. And what Jesus wants to give you today is, is a sense of rest, of peace, and finding a new, indestructible, safe and secure identity that he freely gives by his grace. And he meets you exactly where you are. You don't have to posture, you don't have to pretend, you don't have to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. He meets you right where you are. And if you are a Christian, we need to remember our true identity. Right? Remember, we're not defined by our failures. We're not defined by sin. We're defined by what Jesus has done for us. That is the thing that is most true about us. It's the righteousness of Christ that's been imparted to us. See, Jesus became what you and I are so that we could become what he is. And Jesus is faithful and he's holy. And one of the ways that we know that is that when Jesus went to the cross, his body was broken, his blood was shed for us. And in that, he was making an appeasement with the wrath of God. He was going to pay for the sins, our failures on our behalf. And one of the ways we know that payment was accepted is because God rose him from the dead. And anybody who receives the grace of Jesus is marked by his, his blood. And one of the ways that we participate with Jesus week in and week out is by partaking in the Lord's Supper, being reminded that this is who I am. This meal points to my true identity, that I am in Christ. And it is secure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus and, and really achieving that which we could never achieve. That he lived the perfect life that we were meant to live. He died the death that we were intended to die to pay for our sins and our failures. But by your grace, God, you step in. You give us a new identity. You give us a, a completely new way of being in the world through the gospel of grace. Father, we ask that you would make this grace come alive to us today, that you would teach us to walk in these ways, that our identity, who we are in Christ, would shape the way that we live, that our, our being would inform our doing. And as we live into this identity, we would become who we already are in Christ. And in doing so, we would glorify you, that you would get the praise, that there would be this posture of humility. It's, I am who I am because of the grace of God. So Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in us, as we come to take this meal, would we be reminded of our secure identity? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. It is secure. It is for us. We are sealed by it. God, and through this next several months, would you please help form our identity around the gospel of grace for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.